Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, August the 7th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in our podcast studio today are Irish Times columnist Fintan O'Toole and Owen O'Brien, who's the Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing, planning and local government. He's also author of the just-published book, Home, Why Public Housing is the Answer, which we're going to be discussing in a little while. But first, I wanted to talk about uh, Fintan's uh, Saturday column in which he he put forward a a very interesting proposition, essentially that the the seats currently held by Sinn Féin at Westminster, the Northern Ireland seats held at Westminster, that its representatives should stand down from those seats and that agreed, I suppose, anti-Brexit candidates or Remain candidates or certainly anti-no-deal candidates should be elected in order to have an instrumental effect on what's going on at Westminster. And that's had all kinds of interesting knock-on effects, Fintan. Um, You wrote about it again uh, in your column yesterday on Tuesday. Um, And just tell us how you think this has turned out over the last while. Well, so, uh, you know, whatever people think, I was I was trying to honestly do something to sail between a rock and a hard place, right? So, so the rock is the one that, you know, we're heading for, you know, which is this, this is a real possibility of a no-deal Brexit on October 31st, which is, I think, you know, common ground would be that that's pretty uh, catastrophic for, for Britain, but also for Ireland where the best estimates we have is 50,000 jobs in the Republic and 40,000 jobs in the North. Appalling uh, damage to farming communities in particular, uh, to the border communities, um, to small small businesses. Um, and that's before you even come to the, 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 the political crisis that this causes, you know. Uh, and on the one side, it's very satisfying to to say, you know, this is immoral, reckless, disgusting, and it is. <laughs> what do we do after that, right? So, so that's heading towards us, and we have an extraordinary situation, which we might just think about from the other side of it, right? Suppose Boris Johnson wins a vote of confidence by three votes. Suppose he's able to maneuver a no-deal Brexit by two or three votes in the House of Commons. And we looked back and we said... There were seven seats in Irish hands which would deprive Johnson of his majority, which could galvanise, I think, a lot of the uh, no-deal uh, sentiment that's, that's already very strong within Parliament. And that in particular, like there's something that's slightly technical, but we just have to get our heads around it, which is it's very likely there, w- there will be a vote of no confidence in Johnson in September. Uh, he could well lose that vote of no confidence even on the existing mathematics. What then happens is absolutely crucial. Right? So, so previously in Britain, what would happen is the Prime Minister loses a vote of confidence, there's an immediate general election, that's what happens. Right? That can't happen now. Right? They, they brought in the uh, Fixed Term Parliaments Act in 2011. And what the Fixed Term Parliaments Act says is that if a Prime Minister loses a vote of confidence, there's 14 days 
in which either that prime minister can show that they now have a, a, a majority in, in, in parliament and can rerun it and effectively stay in office, or, this is the crucial thing, an alternative prime minister can emerge from parliament. Right? Now, in normal circumstances, say this is like, it's nonsense, it's not going to happen, right? These are not normal circumstances, right? We're, we're, we're in unprecedented territory where you're going to have a huge constitutional crisis in Britain. Nobody quite knows how this is going to play out. Seven um, committed uh, anti-no-deal uh, Irish MPs would make an enormous difference. If you don't think Irish MPs can make a difference in this, look at the DUP, right? There's 10 of them there. <laughs> We're talking about seven completely unused Irish seats, which are having, having just no, no voice for those border communities. Five of those constituencies are the border constituencies, right? So this is the community which is most affected of any part of the UK by a no-deal Brexit. And it has no political voice in the arena where this is going to be decided. We may not like the fact that it's going to be decided in the House of Commons. It's just a fact that it will be. So that's, that's, that's the, the rock. The hard place is, and I completely accept this, by the way. I've never written a column saying that Sinn Féin has to take its seats in, in, in Westminster and is, you know, behaving really badly. And all Sinn Féin fought the 2017 general election. It's very recent. It's not, you know, that long ago. And it, it bought it on an abstentionist platform. Uh, this was after the Brexit referendum. It was at a time when Theresa May was pushing a very hard Brexit. So people knew, you know, I, I, I think it would be insulting to those voters to say they didn't know what they were voting for. They, they, they voted for an abstentionist uh, platform and they have absolute right to that. So I, I don't think, you know, that Sinn Féin taking those seats is uh, it's a reasonable demand for anybody to make. I also don't think even if they did. So if seven Sinn Féin MPs suddenly arrived on September the 3rd when House Commons uh, reassembles in <laughs> Westminster, that the effect would be anything other than counterproductive, right? It would, it would drive certain Tory MPs who are wavering and, you know, maybe sort of inclined to possibly vote down Johnson. It would, it would put them in an impossible situation, right? So, so I'm not, you know, that, that's, that's, that's a given reality, right? So, so what else do we do? And it calls for something imaginative. It calls for something bold. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're in a time of, 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 of national crisis and there's a real urgency to this, right? There's, these next three months are going to be absolutely crucial. So, so what I've suggested is, right, that it would be possible for, this is something that involves Sinn Féin. Right? It's not about sidelining Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin would be absolutely crucial to the process, right? Coordinated by-elections, seven by-elections, which could be held if this was moved on the 3rd of September, they could be held by the end of September. Uh, you have a pact whereby the four anti-Brexit parties in, 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 in the North, which is Sinn Féin, the STLP, the Alliance Party and the Greens, come together. They put up one candidate in each of those constituencies. That candidate is a non-partisan candidate. Right? This is absolutely crucial. So, uh, you know, I've been criticising this, saying, oh, they'd be Sinn Féin proxies. No, well, come on, you know, seriously. If, if they're properly chosen as, as independent people of substance, they're not Sinn Féin proxies. Right? They're not going to be seen as puppets. They have a very clear, open and transparent and democratic agenda, right? which is, is to stop no deal. Uh, so that they will support any either legislative or procedural manoeuvre to stop no deal to vote against Johnson in, in, in the no-confidence motion and to support the possibility of an alternative prime minister who would seek an extension to Article 50 and to uh, support the backstop. And so, uh, you know, they're, they're in favour of the backstop. They're going to, you know, speak for it and, and, and vote for it if, if, if it comes to it. And finally, to support, if there is a move for a second referendum, to support that. It's very clear. What they would do then is they would, they would guarantee that they would not stand for re-election. Right? So, so they're not trying to build a political base against Sinn Féin. And 
they could be recalled at any time that Sinn Féin wished. Right. So if, if, if Sinn Féin's worried about the fact that these people are kind of trying to sideline Sinn Féin, carpet backers were coming in, yeah. you know, so, so Sinn Féin would have that power. Now, I mean, is this unprecedented? Yes, absolutely. Is it um, bold? Yes. Is it is it something that we would in normal circumstances not expect to happen? All of those things, right? But we are not in normal circumstances. We are in a national crisis. And it, it calls for some kind of imagination to be applied to do whatever is possible to stop this potentially catastrophic outcome for Irish people. Okay, Owen, unprecedented, bold, unexpected, but these are remarkable times and they require remarkable measures. Okay, so first of all, I share all of Finton's concern about Brexit, whether it's a soft Brexit or a hard Brexit. Uh, uh, And uh, as a party who represents many of those people, uh, we are acutely aware of all of those impacts because they don't just affect our voters, they affect our members, our elected representatives, their families, etc. So take all of that as a given. Where I, I strongly disagree with Finton, I suppose, is is what he then outlines as the strategy he sees as preventing a hard Brexit. And I think the difficulty with that is, is that it just flies in the face of, of all of the facts of what we've seen over the last number of years. So let's go through them bit by bit. First is... There isn't a scenario where Parliament is going to vote for a no-deal Brexit. And we know that from the indicative votes, where 400 MPs voted against a no-deal Brexit to 160. The problem in Westminster is, is while there is a majority for Brexit, there is no majority for any particular version of Brexit that has been put to them. Uh, And we all know that, both through the indicative votes uh, and through the three rejections of the withdrawal agreement. So Boris Johnson actually doesn't have a majority for any particular variant of, of Brexit, which is the problem. And that actually means that the seven either Sinn Féin votes or, you know, independent uh, people of good standing uh, 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 MPs that Finton envisages it will have no impact on any of that electoral arithmetic inside Westminster. Let's shift then to the scenario of... Sorry, of just, a, just to, because Finton but, but was no, suggesting otherwise in relation me, to the, the no confidence I'm coming vote. to that. But yeah. let, so Finton got a good run to outline his, his position. Let, let, let me run through the, the steps of this. So you then move to the situation which is around the no-confidence motion and whether or not there's some kind of interim prime minister or government of national unity. Um, Now, we're already hearing from a significant number of Conservatives who uh, are clearly on the record as being against a no-deal that that is something that they are considering, that there's a number of steps before that, but they are actively considering uh, a a motion uh, of no-confidence if that is the only way to stop a no-deal Brexit. Those MPs aren't going to go for that nuclear option and then sit on their hands and allow a no-deal Brexit to happen anyway. So I, I see no set of circumstances, and, and from all of the people I'm talking to in Britain, and I talk to people uh, in various political circles in Britain on a regular basis, <coughs> the scenarios that Finton outlines are not the scenarios that anybody who is informed and is assessing this expects to take place. I have another problem with Finton's argument, though, which... I read his piece uh, yesterday and, and I hear him saying that he's trying to be respectful and he accepts Sinn Féin's mandate. But whether he intends it or not, for very many of the voters who voted for us in the Westminster election in 2017, there is something quite kind of patronising and almost insulting about a bit of his argument. Because there's a sentence in his, his, his first article where he talks about uh, people voted in full knowledge of, you know, Theresa May and... Uh, the no-deal Brexit scenario, knowing the risks, but they voted for abstentionism anyway. And there's an implication almost that these people were kind of reckless, that these people were kind of like, no, so just let me, no, let me, no, no, let me, no. let me, I, I said, irrespective of whether you intended it or not, that is the way people are reading it, Finton. So, people voted for Sinn Féin because for decades, 
They have been sending MPs to Westminster and it has produced no result. Now, during the Westminster election, this whole issue was debated in great detail. In fact, the SDLP were at pains to suggest that if you elected abstentionist MPs, it could result in a no-deal Brexit. It could result in some of the scenarios that Fintan outlined. The electorate debated all of that, discussed all of that, and took a democratic decision. So the idea that we now sideline all of those voters and put in place some very unusual and exotic arrangement, I think is patronising, I think it's insulting, and I think it's deeply undemocratic. Although here's those my, voters, those voters my, would, have the, would have the final say because yeah, they would need to... They, they will, How is an they, election sidelining voters? I'm sorry, I, just don't, I just don't... You are, you are sidelining... grasp you are, you are, that argument. You are, you are sidelining the democratic decision that people took in 2017. Now, let me make the final argument. Leaving all of that to one side, this is just an enormous distraction. The reason is this. The, the only way we are going to stop a hard Brexit is through concerted political action, both at the European level and internationally, uh, to force the British government's hand. And contrary to Fintan's argument, abstentionist MPs aren't impotent. In fact, the argument is that nationalist MPs who went to Westminster for decades were impotent. We are incredibly active, both at the European Parliament, our MPs, our MLAs, using all of the fora. There is no community in the border, uh, uh, north or south, at Election Fein, uh, that hasn't got a voice. It has a voice where it matters. In the negotiations, which we are supporting the Irish government side between the EU27 uh, and the British government, that is where this will be decided. So, on the one hand, you have Boris Johnson, ably supported by Timmy Dooley, attacking Leo Varadkar for being the cause of all of this problem. There's a kind of implicit argument, particularly in the conclusion of Fintan's second article, that, you know, if there's a hard deal Brexit, it's going to be Sinn Féin's fault. That's not the case. There is a plan. There is a strategy. It's those negotiations and all of this other stuff. Like With the greatest respect to Fintan, this is just silly season, summer filling of, of space. It's not, in my view, a credible proposal. That's not to say that the issues Fintan's raising are not a huge concern. But let's be clear. We go through all of this pain. We go through all of this struggle. We elect these seven uh, 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 people of, of good standing on the basis of Fintan says. They will have no impact in Westminster because the real political game is elsewhere and that's where everybody's attention should be focused. OK, I want to give Fintan a chance to respond to that, but just I want to add a couple of things, Fintan, before I do. I mean, there's a letter by Roy Greenslade in the Irish Times this morning where, and he's a well-informed commentator on, on British and Irish politics, where he's been talking to a number of people, he says in the letter, I think mostly on the Labour side and on the Remain side, who say that mathematically that it, it doesn't add up, that it wouldn't have any any significant impact on how this is going to play out over the next while. And then the other point is Mary Lou MacDonald um, has an article in today's newspaper also in which she um, she sets out a rebuttal of your contention yesterday. And just to say that your contention in yesterday's column essentially was that there's a certain form of disaster politics, if I can put it that way, disaster capitalism in the case of Tory Brexiteers, uh, disaster socialism in the case of elements of the current Labour Party leadership who see the kind of a catastrophic Brexit as perhaps leading to some socialist nirvana in the future. And you argue disaster nationalism on the Sinn Féin side, who basically say that, if you know, that, that this is going to ultimately lead to a more likely eventuality of a united Ireland sooner, sooner rather than later and hang the consequences. But Mary Luke Macdonald in particular, I think, she makes the point that, as, as Owen has laid out to some extent as well, you know, Sinn Féin has been involved in a very positive way in many of the political processes attempting to uh, first of all, prevent um, a hard Brexit and then to ameliorate it in terms of, for example, the backstop. And so it's, it, I would take her point that it's, it's, it's an unfair characterization of Sinn Féin's political strategy over the last five years that is just seeking to burn everything down. 
No, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're just seeking to burn everything down. I, I think let's let's stick with what happened, right? So, so this proposal, which you know, I think Owen accepts, is is, is made in good faith, right? So, um, it went online in the Irish Times uh, on um, Friday afternoon, yeah, uh, late late afternoon. Within about an hour, I mean, Sinn Féin was out saying this is utterly ridiculous, absolutely nonsense, nowhere, you know. Now, that's not so. So, so this is rejected without even the slightest consideration, right? So, so there's there's been no process at all of thinking about this. And one has to think then, why? You know, what, what, why would you not even think about it? Um, and it, it seems to me very clear that the way this unfolded was, was that Sinn Féin th- th- was striking a kind of a raw nerve, right? So, so there's a, there was a, a certain amount of worry about this, a certain amount of anxiety about it. I wonder, you know, is it possible that, you know, some people within Sinn Féin and within Sinn Féin's broader hinterland might actually take it seriously and dis- want to actually discuss it, you know, just discuss it. What we had instead is, is, is you know, um, rule it out first and then try to find the reasons why we're against it. And this is absolutely what's happening, right? This stuff about the mathematics is, is it's just stated, right? There's, no, there's absolutely no analysis uh, being applied to this whatsoever. It's extraordinary that Roy, Roy Greenslade, who's a journalist, I mean, writes a letter quoting, but won't tell us who they are. You know, these are supposedly politicians. Now, I mean, I've never heard of politicians taking a position on a public question without putting their names to them. You know, just not not willing to say who they are or, or, or why they take the positions that they take. Owen is talking about being patronising. I mean, what, one of the things that's that's being said is that uh, oh well, people um, voters wouldn't understand. You know, the proposition would be too complicated for people. I mean, I, come on! I, I didn't say that. No, no, no. You didn't. Nor does Mary no, no, say that it, in the it, Irish Times today. It, I'm talking about Roy, Roy Greenslade's uh, letter, right? So, so you know. Who's who's patronising voters here? People on the border know exactly what this is about. They know exactly uh, w- w- where power lies. The proposition that power lies in the European Parliament, which is which is Owen's point. Well, first of all, people didn't seem to believe that in the European Parliament. Sorry, elections, I didn't say the European Parliament in the negotiations between the EU twenty-seven heads of state and the British you government. You did say the European Parliament, by the way. You, no, no, that's but, what you said. No, we said we lobby in the European Parliament. Yeah. But but the key uh, politics no, no, here you, is that EU twenty-seven negotiations, the British government. Uh, yes, that's where and the game Sinn Féin is. has absolutely zero influence on that. There is no assembly. There is no executive in in Belfast. The the voice of Northern Ireland, the people of Northern Ireland, is not heard in this at all. That, that's simply the, not the case. It's in, been heard the, Sorry, everywhere. I thought we would agree that we would try to be civilised about this and let, let me make a point and then you can make a point. Right? The, there is no executive. There is no assembly. So therefore, there is no official voice for Northern Ireland in this entire process. There is... Sinn Féin's voice in the European Parliament has been significantly diminished by the electors. So if we're talking about the, you know, respecting the electors, the electors have made a certain judgment on that, right? They just clearly don't believe that Sinn Féin in the European Parliament is, 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 is going to stop an old deal. The reality, whether we like it or not, and I don't like it, is that the arena of struggle, the arena of conflict in the next three months is in the House of Commons. That's, that's where this thing is going to happen. The European Union does not have the power to stop an old deal Brexit. And what Owen seems not to simply understand is the mathematics here are about, uh, def- they're defensive, right? They're about defending Ireland from an existing situation. Boris Johnson does not need to get a majority for no deal in the House of Commons. This is the critical thing that Owen seems not to understand, that Mary Lou seems not to understand. The mathematics here are all on Johnson's side. Why? Because they have already voted to exit the European Union. The 31st of October is a date that is in law and that will 
they will exit on a no deal unless some other intervention happens. And this is where Owen is absolutely right. So this is, this is the, the, where the mathematics come into play, which is you have to then put together a majority, which is not about saying we don't want no deal. We know a majority in the House of Commons doesn't want no deal. It's a majority for an actual proposition or procedure which stops it. And finally, just to make a point, I mean, the idea that seven MPs from, from Ireland can make absolutely no difference. So what we're being told is they're completely impotent. They would be able to do nothing in this incredibly tight uh, uh, situation. Has anybody told the DUP this? I mean, you know, so, so, so we're being presented on the one side with the absolute reality that everybody has seen over the last two years in particular where the DUP has been having a, a, a critical influence in, in driving towards a very hard Brexit and, and, and probably, although they don't particularly want it themselves, ending up driving towards a no-deal Brexit. And yet we're expected to believe that, that seven people of real substance coming from Ireland representing after all. Remember, these people would be the only voice that the majority in Northern Ireland would have. The majority in Northern Ireland voted very clearly against Brexit. They have had no representation in the arena, which is going to decide this whether we like it or not. Oh, okay, now I, I want to move on to the second part of this podcast in a little while, but I'd be able to give you a chance. There's an awful lot there. I won't give you a chance of a proper two, response. Two, two, two brief things. First of all, um, uh, you didn't need more than an hour uh, to consider Fintan's article because the, the issue around whether or not taking seats in Westminster is a good or a bad idea has been debated ad nauseum for three no, years. No, this isn't taking seats in Westminster. Just, I, that's, just, it's a just, different proposition. You but know it's, it it's, no, no, it's taking seats. And whether it's Sinn Féin people or other people... The key issue is it won't have an impact. Likewise, for example, the DUP have had an impact in keeping a Tory government alive, but they haven't had, and they are not the cause, uh, uh, of the inability of the Westminster Parliament to agree the form of Brexit. Why? Because everybody is divided. There is clear analysis around your numbers don't add up. That analysis is in the indicative votes and the three votes against the withdrawal agreement. There is lots and lots of evidence to show the types of scenarios that you're futuring in your article aren't sensible or credible strategies and therefore those of us that are in the business of actually trying to stop a hard deal Brexit will put our energies Why didn't you publish that analysis? Uh, I'm, I'm just very I'm, interested. You said there's lots of analysis and there's not a single piece of a mathematical analysis in Mary Lou's piece. There's been nothing online. There's been no response at I'm all. Sorry. We just actually looked at real scenarios. Fintan, Fintan. And, and, the, scenario, and, the scenarios are, and we all know this, are the indicative votes and the three votes against the withdrawal agreement. But, but I suppose let me take one step further. What we know from the Greek crisis, from the Spanish crisis, from the Eurozone crisis, and all of these big crises where you have a standoff between the, the uh, EU heads of state and an individual member state, is, is not in member state parliaments where this stuff gets decided. Now, Fintan is right. It's not on the floor of the European Parliament where this stuff ultimately gets decided. It's at council level. It's in that key arena of struggle, which is the heads of state. And Sinn Féin is playing a role. Now, you're right. We're not a key player. We're not a, a head of state or a government. But we have played a central role using every bit of influence and every bit of public uh, 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 hearing that we have had to advocate the case. We were the first party, for example, to talk about a special status uh, uh, for the North, something originally rejected by everybody and then eventually worked its way into the mainstream discourse. We have proactively supported uh, uh, this government in their approach, even when other parties like Fianna Fáil have, for purely expedient reasons, tried to play politics with it. We have done our job. But let me make a final point. The voters in the border on the north uh, of Ireland are, are smart people, like voters everywhere. And if they really thought 
that we were doing what Finton suggests at the end of his article yesterday, is somehow covertly playing a kind of a disaster politics and playing recklessly with their social and economic and cultural well-being, they would boot us out of office tomorrow. They know we're not. They know we're serious about trying to stop this. And they don't believe uh, uh, that sending any seven, whether it's Sinn Féin or, or independent people of, of so-called good standing, is where the battle is at. It's at the council. It's at the negotiations between the EU27. And that's where the focus should be. And, and that's where we'll continue to put our focus. And then we'll let the voters decide. And if they think Finton is right, and if they think we're being reckless and playing disaster politics, let them make up their mind. It's but, too what, late. But what I'll say is it won't be too late. What I'll say is this. Finton made two very serious accusations against the British Labour Party and Sinn Féin yesterday. Both have not a shred of evidence to support them. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him are not engaged in some kind of disaster socialism. They have a series of very, very difficult problems. But they are in my estimation, trying to get a general election to then introduce a soft Brexit to maintain party unity. I'm not saying it's a good strategy. I'm not saying it's the right strategy. They are not in the business of disaster socialism to create some kind of utopia socialism in one country as you propose. Likewise, Sinn Féin is not engaged in disaster nationalism. We are doing everything we can, uh, as we see as appropriate, to prevent a no-deal Brexit and ultimately to prevent a Brexit. Uh, because even if we get a soft Brexit, many of the issues that Finton rightly mentioned at the very start are still going to have negative consequences for uh, people, including our voters, our supporters uh, and our own members. But what I'll say is this. This discussion around seats in a parliament that is so deeply divided those seven seats will have no impact is a distraction. Uh, and the sooner we get back to the real business of trying to stop a hard Brexit uh, in the arena where it really matters, the better for all of us. OK, we're going to leave it there and stick with us. We're we'll Come back to us. We're going to be talking about housing. You're listening to the Irish Times. So, Owen, your book is fairly, relatively recently out. as reviewed in the Irish Times on Saturday, very favourably, uh, by, by Tony Fahey. It's, uh, I've read it. I would recommend it to anybody who's interested in this issue. Uh, in part, what it does is it draws together a lot of deep research which has been done about the history of the state's intervention and lack of intervention at certain points in housing policy since since its foundation. But it does it in a cogent and, and eminently readable way. We could spend two hours talking about it and we're not going to do that because Declan, our producer, will kill me. Um, it, it kind of roughly breaks down, I think, uh, Tony Fahey says in his review, uh, into three parts. And one is the history of, the, of, of all this since the foundation, in fact, before the foundation of the state uh, and through perhaps up until the, the 80s and 90s when there's a, there's a kind of a, there's a lot of complexity in, in the state's approach, but there's a fundamental change that happens then. And then you look at what that change is, which is really the world we have now, which is a much more hands-off approach to direct provision of housing by the state for, uh, for, for citizens. And then the third part, I suppose, is what you're putting forward as your, 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 your proposed solution. Uh, I want to ask you about that second bit first, because um, what happened in the 80s and 90s? We know that there was a, uh, Ireland was not the only place where governments withdrew from large-scale social housing provision in the 80s and 90s. It certainly happened in, in the United Kingdom as well under, Mar under Margaret Thatcher. But what happened with the sort of the demonisation that seemed to happen of the kind of communities who lived in, 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 the, in council housing, I suppose, in the, in the 80s and 90s? Well, if you want to understand what happened, you have to actually ask a question slightly more broadly, which is what happened with housing policy generally? Because it's, it's not just about what happened to council housing, but also all the other state supports for, for example, owner occupation that allowed many working families to get access to affordable accommodation. Two key things happen, uh, and they both happen in and around 1987. 
The first is, is the state withdraws from a whole variety of long-term low-interest loans and grants for people to build or buy their own homes. Uh, very, very significant numbers of people uh, from the foundation of the state, but particularly in the 50s, 60s and 70s, bought and built homes with state support. They would never have been able to have affordable uh, owner occupation without it. Uh, and it, to replace that state support, uh, credit liberalisation allowed the banks in first building societies at, at, at more flexible levels than commercial banks. So you have what the academics call the financialization of home ownership with the hugely devastating consequences that we all now know about into the 90s. And at the same time, the state withdraws almost completely from the provision of council housing. So 1986, you know, there's somewhere around seven or 8,000 council houses. In the following year, there's about seven or 800 council houses. 1991 is then a key date because the Department of Environment uh, puts together a social housing uh, a policy document which really has been the template for every government housing plan since. And it, what it does is it continues to promote uh, private finance home ownership as the preferred option for the majority and a very, very small level investment in, in social housing to meet kind of extreme need. Now, what else was happening in, for example, Dublin at the time? We had a massive recession in inner city working class areas, whether it's St. Michael's or O'Devany or Oscar Trainer, you have chronic, chronic unemployment. You also have the arrival of heroin uh, uh, and the absolute waste that that uh, uh, creates in those areas. Uh, and this discourse begins to emerge. It starts in a NESC study in 1988, but then it really is crystallised in that 1991 uh, Department of Environment uh, uh, policy document where it blames single-tenure council estates for the socio-economic disadvantage of St. Michael's, of Devony, etc. Even though, if you went to every other council estate in the state at that time, they were really good places to live, yes, with issues and problems, but they were good quality communities. And in terms of the ones that you've mentioned there, wasn't one of the factors that had led them to what in some cases were pretty desperate circumstances for people living there was because of the actions of the state in creating what, what are called in populist terms sink estates? No. Well, let, let, let Encouraging me, people with jobs to move out of certain areas yeah. and, and concentrating people who had so, particular difficulties in certain let, areas. Because in, in, in the more popular narrative of this stuff, some things have got confused, right? So... Okay. The real failure of the state, for example, in those inner city, you know, kind of uh, high density housing estates was failure to invest in proper maintenance of the stock, failure to invest in good quality education, particularly when unemployment started to hit with recession and failure of the state through its justice policies and policing to tackle the scourge of heroin. They were the real failures. Separately to that, you did have the surrender grant introduced in the mid-1980s by the Fine Gael uh, Labour government, if, if I remember correctly, which did encourage higher income working class families to buy out of uh, their council houses. Generally speaking, uh, uh, the areas that were affected by those were your Darndales, your Tallas, your, not your inner city estates, mm -hmm. but they, they created problems there. So essentially two things happened. The state withdraws from a variety of supports, income uh, and direct provision to provide social affordable housing. And at the same time, the state starts to demonise council housing and the people who live in council housing for other state failures in terms of justice policy, economic policy and employment policy. And that just replicates, and it replicates uh, in Fianna Fáil's housing policies in, in the 90s, it replicates in Alan Kelly, Fine Gael Labour's policies in 2014, and it's replicated in Rebuilding Ireland. And I suppose the reason why it's important to state all of that is, is our real problem today is not Owen Murphy, and it's not Rebuilding Ireland, even though they are a problem. It's understanding that unless the state starts to intervene in our housing system on a much broader scale and on a much bigger scale than it has ever done before, not just to meet the needs of poor working class families, 
but the Nitamis have a much broader section of working families, including people who wouldn't consider themselves uh, as working class, modest income or middle income, and even middle to high income families, unless it does it at that scale, through the provision of public housing to meet social affordable need, we're going to be stuck in this cycle forever. And if you look at housing systems that have taken that second approach, right, so your Germany's, your Singapore's, uh, uh, your Austria's, when the crash came, you know, these countries had a public housing, non-market housing of a quantum of about 30 or 40%. So they were able to withstand the shock of the Great Recession to a far greater extent than countries that had heavily liberalised private finance and residualised social housing like Ireland, Britain, New Zealand and Australia. And that means that if you have a big, big level of intervention in social affordable housing, it's not just good for the people who live in it, it stabilises the housing system overall, it dampens down demand, it dampens down prices, and it means when the next recession happens, which it inevitably will in capitalist boom and bust economies, society as a whole will be much better protected. So the key turning point was 87 to 91. There has been little deviation from that policy consensus since. And the reason, I suppose, for writing the book was to say, unless we make a really dramatic break in policy terms, in legislative terms, in investment terms, and start saying, instead of having a public housing stock of about 8 or 9%, we want a public housing stock of 30%. That means half of every new uh, construction in the state, year on year, has to be public, non-market housing. There's a whole variety of different ways of doing it. But unless we do that, at the very best, rebuilding Ireland is going to take us back to you know, 2002, 2003, 2004. But at worst, it's just going to keep driving that cycle of chronic affordable and social housing need, unacceptable levels of homelessness and people increasingly reliant on the private rental sector subsidised by the taxpayer or excessive mortgage finance to finance homes that are modest in size but excessive in price. So before I go to Fenton on this, can I just ask you a follow-up on that? You, I mean, you say the problem is not Owen Murphy. I mean, who is the problem there in that this world, you know, we live in a world which was conceptualised and initially created in the late 80s and the early 90s. Um, it's been carried out for more than a quarter of a century now, um, by the state. Does the problem lie in an ideological mentality in the Department of the Environment, among civil servants, the apparatus of the state, local authorities? Is, is, is that where the problem lies? I mean, who is, I mean, have you engaged with your argument, your critique there? Have you engaged with the people who are actually implementing the current policies? Yeah, and look, I've, I've, I have a really good working relationship with a lot of the senior officials in the department, some of whom I have a huge amount of time for. I engage a lot with the senior officials in the housing agency. I deal with a lot of senior housing managers and local authorities. And there's a variety of views there. But what happens when, when you get a consensus like the one that we've had for three decades is there are different interests at stake. So, of course, some people are ideological. They're driven by a particular worldview. Other people are pragmatic and just trying to get by in, in the mess and the crisis and the chaos that's there, including good people making questionable decisions because they're trying to get stuff fixed. What I would say, however, is this. There, there's an there's a academic I quote near the end of the book called David Clapham, one of the world's leading uh, experts on, on public housing. And he talks about how housing systems all over the world, they become locked in what he calls kind of path dependency, but basically they become locked in a consensus. It's very difficult to break out of that consensus for all sorts of reasons. But he then says there are moments... Uh, of potential change, moments of crisis. And because he's looking all over the world, he's saying he thinks we're in one of those moments now. And I thought we were in one of those moments here before I read him. And when I read him, I realised, you know, I think that's where we're at. And the reason why is because whereas during the Celtic Tiger, okay, people were taking on a huge debt, but they were able to get access to the properties, right? 
during the recession, everybody knew there was a recession and there was no money about to fix it. But what increasing numbers of people are realising now, and I don't mean just those languishing on local authority housing waiting lists or families spending two or three years in emergency accommodation. I mean people who aren't eligible for any social housing support and are on decent incomes are all beginning to realise this makes no sense. This policy consensus does not meet our interests. And I think the challenge for those of us who are advocating change and the reason for writing the book was to kind of be a, a tool, I suppose, for, for people in that campaign is say, OK, we now have to mobilise in as many different ways as possible on the street, in the councils, in the doll, in the media, in the universities and maximise the level of pressure to kind of crack the system a little bit and force the policy change. It happened well, before. when you say a little bit, it's a pretty profound change you're talking about here. Once you make that crack and... If you go back to that period of 87 to 91, there wasn't a big bang moment. There wasn't some day where everything changed. The old consensus that had been there before, which wasn't perfect, and I don't want us to be rose-tinted about what existed before the mid-80s, but once it cracked, that then allowed all sorts of things, unfortunately, a very negative way to follow. So we need to learn from that and say, we now are in a moment, and that moment isn't going to last forever, where there is a critical mass growing. If you look at, for example, all of the opinion poll surveys... Ireland Thinks did it for the Daily Mail in January. The Sunday Business Post did it after the budget in October. The single biggest issue of political concern in every opinion poll that where people have asked is housing. Twice Brexit, twice uh, health. It's not because people don't think those things are crucial. Why? Because more and more working people cannot access secure, appropriate and affordable accommodation no matter what sector they're in. Worse than that, they see the city littered with cranes building co-living units where people will pay €1,300 a a month to live in 12 square metres of personal living space, high-end hotels, student accommodation for very wealthy students at €800 or €900. So they know there's money to build. They know there's investors willing to invest. But everything government is doing is funneling that potential investment in good quality social affordable housing into the wrong sector. So there is a real opportunity for change. But only if everybody who's really concerned about this says, we're going to make it our business in whatever walk of life, in whatever way we feel comfortable, to do something to force that change and either A, force Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to realise they have to make that break or make this such a big issue that come the next general election, whenever it is, people actually say, do you know what, one of the issues on the top of my list is to vote for parties who are advocating a completely different policy formulation. It can be done. It's been done in many, many jurisdictions, currently including European jurisdictions. It was done in part in our own history in the late 40s, 50s and 60s. So, this isn't, this isn't something undoable. It's not like health, for example, where there's a level of complexity. This is about identifying public land, accessing investment capital to build good quality accommodation and making it available for some people subsidised uh, uh, through social rent, but for the vast majority, not subsidised, just paying the economic cost of the accommodation of the life cycle of the unit. It is eminently doable, but we need the public pressure to force either this set of politicians or another set of politicians to do it. Fintan, I suspect this is an issue in which you're probably pretty close to most of what Owen has just has just laid out, both in terms of uh, identifying the problem and proposing uh, a solution. I know it's a subject you've written about yourself from, from time to time in the past. Do you agree? I, I wonder, listening to Owen there, is he right that there is actually a political groundswell on this issue? There clearly is huge social problems arising from from the, from from the housing crisis. They we didn't really see them manifest in the elections that we had as an issue earlier this year. We've seen demos, but they haven't been on the scale of the water charges. It, 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 
even though people say it's really important, I'm not sure if people are, are if it's going to be the main issue they're going to vote on, on an election. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I completely agree with Owen's analysis. Uh, I mean, and, and I think he's done a superb job um, politically and, 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 and in writing, you know, in, in, in terms of um, making a coherent, sensible case. And it is a sensible case. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing... You know, it's it's not even particularly radical. I mean, it's stuff we've done in the past. So, like when Owen talks about thirty percent, you know, we've actually had thirty percent in the past of, of of new housing being built, being being social housing. Um, but your question, I think, is absolutely right. You know, which is which is you've got this complete disjunction between political priority and I think public priority. I mean, I think the vast majority of people have had experience of this, even if they don't directly know they have. Right. So even if you've never lived in social housing even if your family hasn't lived in social housing. And by the way, that category is huge. If you think about over the entire history of the state, how many million people have lived in social housing or parents came from social housing or whatever. Um, but even if you're not in that category, surely you know this has affected you fundamentally. Why? Because we have a completely dysfunctional housing system. And one of the reasons we have a dysfunctional housing system is because we stopped building social housing. That dysfunctional housing system affects you whether or not you ever aspire to live in social housing, right? Um, it, it's had a disastrous effect on people's lives and the, the appalling access to housing as a, as a human right and, and as something that's basic to human dignity, but also economically, of course. So it's, it's, it, it has built in a fundamental instability. This is the Chernobyl of, of Irish, uh, the Irish economy, you know? I mean, even in these kind of fantasy scenarios where after Brexit, you know, we get all this inward investment, where are people going to live? You know, like it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fundamental problem of life in Ireland. So why then... You know, and I think this is I'm I'm it's it's extraordinary the degree to which the the political orthodoxy, the media orthodoxy, the you know the the general discourse around this um, remains uh, very much one that is not connected to 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 people's lives in that way. Now, so what we have to understand is why is that right? And I think Owen's touched on some of these these things, but I think you really have to emphasize the 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 power of this sort of vicious circle that was created from the 1980s onwards. And I think I'll describe exactly what happened, right? Which is you had this, this confluence of uh, a social policy of not building social housing and of mass unemployment and, and, and deepening poverty for a lot of those communities, which allowed a discourse to emerge, which is social housing is for losers. Social housing is for people who are on drugs. Social housing is, is, is just about the people who can't get their act together enough to be part of the norm, which is that you get a mortgage and you settle down. And it, it, th- that, I think, remains very, very powerful politically. I mean, Leo Varadkar almost said it in the doll a while ago. He, had to, he stopped himself mid-sentence, you know. Um, but it, it was a very interesting moment where you could see this, this mentality, which is there. Yeah, well, actually, which, I was up in Donegal yeah. when, when Pat Leahy was interviewing yeah. Leo Varadkar just two weeks ago. And he kind of made a point again. He, he sort of, and it is a kind of core element of Fine Gael policy, I think. Absolutely. That he believed it's better for people to all go around. Yeah. And, and there is, you know, that's, a, that's an ideological no, it's, position. I, I, it's, um, it's been a Fianna Fáil too, you know. It's, it's been in the sense that, oh, obviously, you're not a real person. You're not a proper citizen unless you own your own home. Uh, and this is no, very to be fair to him. He didn't say that. No, but but no, but it, no, but but that, I mean that that underlying attitude is mm. is very strongly there. It's reinforced by snobbery. I mean, you know, we we one of the things we don't talk about in Ireland is social class. You know, it's a social class issue as well. Um, but but the the, the 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 key thing that happened, I think, was was this vicious circle whereby you stop building social housing or you build very small amounts of it, so that the housing that's being built is only for people who are outside of the working economy. 
and therefore that creates uh, areas in which you can you can then easily categorize those people um, as being the kind of the spongers, the losers, the people who are who are not contributing to society. And then that says, well, why would you build more of this stuff? You know, and uh, of course, you know, what on, I'm, I know it's in very much in his arguments, but we didn't get to say is you have to remember that this plays out. I think the, the reason why it hasn't got the political masses is partly that snobbery, but also there's a, an ostensibly very plausible argument, right, which is to say, oh, it's, we want social mixing, right? It sounds lovely. You know, uh, let's not build any more of these big working class housing estates where you concentrate all these people together. Let's have mixed housing and mixed, mixed, mixed tenure. So you've got people who are buying their own homes side by side with people who are, who, are, who, are, who are social tenants. And that's all lovely. And it sounds fantastic. Two things about it. One, it's never applied to vast areas of new private housing. I didn't notice in the RCE side, for example, you know, which is going to produce all this very expensive private housing. Everybody was saying, oh, you have to have social housing there as well because you couldn't have a mix of middle-class people together. God knows what they might get up to. Um, but also, of course, it's, it's used as an ostensibly plausible way of stopping any kind of development. I live quite close to Ballymun. Just drive out there. I mean, people are, are going out to Ikea or whatever, you know. There's huge amounts of serviced, publicly owned land out there, you know. Fully serviced land. Why will they not build it? You look at the Ballymun development plan, just as an example, right? It says uh, we're waiting for private developers to come along to say we want to build here and then we'll get a bit of that for social housing. Now, you have, well, you, you had like very large numbers of homeless people, I mean, living in in the hotel. Now, there was a fire there in the Vermont, not mm-hmm. but you know, like you, you literally had people who are homeless, homeless families looking out on sites where by now you could have built very decent housing. Just beyond that site, there are some excellent um, voluntary housing things which are actually creating affordable housing for people. This is all perfectly doable. But the reason it's not done is because if you don't, if you don't really think about it, it sounds sounds like a very nice so thing to say. So the theory of social mixing, which as you yeah. say sounds like yeah. mom and apple pie, has actually, there's an element of a conspiracy to prevent the provision of large-scale social housing. It's not the conspiracy, but the effect certainly is to affect. The, the interesting thing is, is tenure mixture has become a dogma. Yeah. Um, and it's become a dogma without any evidence base. And in fact, there's a growing body of academic literature that looking at mixed tenure states all over the world to show that, first of all, it increases the levels of, of social isolation, particularly if it's small numbers of lower-income families. But also, it, it, it's not the issue. So, mixed tenure was first mooted in Ireland, again, in the really important NESC study in 1988. But actually, what the NESC study said was that there should be no heavy concentrations of private housing or of council housing. Right. So, what it was arguing is, we want income mix. And the argument I make in the book is very, sim- very straightforward. Let's stop talking about tenure. Let's talk about income. And the really, really good quality council estates, I, I represent Clondalkin. <coughs> we have thousands of council estates. The vast majority of them are really good, well-settled, uh, mixed-income communities, and I would live in any of them tomorrow. The reason why is because when they were allocated, they were allocated to a broader mix of people, much more representative of working families and working-class communities as a whole. And over time, some of those people invested in those communities and bought their homes and they owned them or their children owned them, etc. So I suppose one of the things I think to get around some of the the, the the deeply ingrained prejudices and misunderstandings of social housing that's out there is let's stop talking about social housing and let's talk about a, a different model of public housing. So, for example, on that site in Ballymun, here's what I would do. I would get the local authority to master plan it, to put in two or three or 400 units, depending on what's required. And I would have them all public. A portion of them fully integrated in the estate, so you don't know which is which, would be for lower income families, most of whom, by the way, work. Right? They're not outside the economy, but they're in low-paid or precarious employment, and they're subsidised. 
But then the rest are paying economic rents, which would be about half what the market rent is. I would even allow some people purchase them, although they would never be allowed to sell those units into the private market. And if they ever wanted to sell into the future, they would have to sell back into the affordable scheme, index link for inflation, etc., just for people who want that. We're going to do that thanks to really great community campaigning by the St. Michael's Regeneration uh, team uh, and good cooperation between progressive politicians and Dum City Council uh, and, and the Oireachtas in St. Michael's Estate and Inchicore. It's going to be the first European Investment Bank funded public housing project, 70% affordable rental, 30% social rental, good quality public library, some retail space and a bit of open space. And I think if we start to do those projects, people will start to see, well, actually, I have a choice. I mean, the reason why everybody wants to buy their own home is because it's the only long-term secure tenure that exists, unless you're one of those tiny number of people who can get into a council house. So if we start to offer people the alternative, then instead of shoving owner-occupation down people's throats, you'd have a genuinely tenure-neutral system where people could choose and they could say, yes, I'd like to buy. No, actually, do you know what? I'd like to rent. Tenancies of indefinite duration. Rents at about seven or 800 euros a month in the centre of Dublin index linked to inflation. Uh, eminently sensible ideas. And I think, to go back to the question you asked, Finton, you're right, we're not getting the levels of political activism and engagement with the campaign. But that's not surprising. Like, for those of us that were opposed to the water charges, I started campaigning against water charges in 2005, right? Like, it didn't happen overnight. These things take time. They have to build. What is absolutely the case is it is an issue of enormous public concern. And therefore on all of us who are concerned about it. I think we have an obligation to say, how do we turn that concern into mobilisation? And I actually think we've won the public debate. I actually think mainstream media coverage right across the broadsheets, the broadcast media and social media agrees with what we're talking about here. I think the academics agree with us and increasingly housing professionals, maybe not in the department, but in local authorities, understand the merits of what we're saying. Our problem is at central government level. And while I'm saying Owen Murphy isn't the problem, he is part of the problem. We have to force that change at cabinet table. Right, I'm afraid we do have to leave it there. Just to say, uh, Home, Why Public Housing is the Answer, which is Owen's book, is published by Marion Press. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, our engineer, JJ Vernon. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can usually find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.